Thanks so much for joining us today. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Ruth chapter 4. It would be great if you could push pause now on this video and go and have a read through Ruth 4, the whole chapter. Also, if you're here regularly, please remember to uh, subscribe to the channel. And if anything that gets said during the course of this sermon is helpful or encouraging or moves you, uh, please won't you give it a like. So that's Ruth chapter 4, and we'll see you back here in just a moment. The movement of the story of Ruth has taken us from expectation to fulfillment. It's taken us from emptiness to fullness. And the fulfillment of this expectation, the, the fullness where there was only emptiness, comes in the form of redemption in chapter 4. The word that gets repeated over and over in chapter 4 is the word redeem, or a derivative of it. If you read through the passage, you'll see it's there time and time again. And there's an extravagance of redemption here that is absolutely amazing. Of course, the Bible's like that, especially the book of Ruth. Truly astonishing redemption, over-the-top redemption. And the rewards and the rewards that you get from studying it stay with you for a long time. They are not easily forgotten. The first thing we need to understand is a little bit of background about redemption. Uh, redemption is part of the DNA of the Bible. Uh, redemption uh, was the DNA of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, the idea of a redeemer goes right the way back to the time of Moses, when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They were there, a people uh, who were imprisoned. They were in deep trouble. They cried out to God, and God remembered his promise to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so God came to their aid. He sent plagues on the Egyptians until they gave in, and Pharaoh let the Israelites go. When Pharaoh changed his mind and decided to pursue them, God parted the Red Sea so that the nation of Israel could escape. Those were mighty acts of rescue. And from then on, Israel referred to God as their Redeemer, the one who had rescued them from slavery from Egypt. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 13, we read, In your unfailing love you will lead the people that you have redeemed. In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. In Psalm 78 verse 35, we read, They remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. Proverbs 23.11 calls God uh, the redeemer who is strong. Their redeemer is strong, it says. Isaiah 47, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And again, Isaiah 63, verse 16, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. So their history as a nation really began with redemption. And this principle became enshrined in the law that God gave through Moses. Uh, the, the DNA, the law by which the, God's people were to live, completely embodied this. God told them in his word to them that he wanted them to be redeemers too. Now here's how that worked. When an Israelite family became poor and had to sell their land to survive, the nearest male relative, the kinsman redeemer, had the responsibility to rescue them from poverty by buying back the land and restoring it to the family. That was called redemption of property. Fairly straightforward. If they became so poor that they had to sell themselves into slavery, 
A rich relative had to rescue them by buying their freedom. This too was an act of redemption, a buying back. Finally, if a man died, leaving his widow without children, which is the situation Ruth and Naomi find themselves in, the nearest male relative had to step in and marry his widow and enable her to have children so they could inherit their father's property and keep it in the family. Here then is a third kind of redemption that was enshrined in the law of God. And in this kind of situation, marriage was not fundamentally about romantic love, it was about another kind of love. It was about redemptive love. It was about ensuring that families survived and kept their property in the family, in the promised land. And Boaz, it was a little bit different uh, because in chapter 3 we discover that he has a deep affection for Ruth. There is a romantic love there. But at the same time, we recognize that first off, there was Naomi to consider and what remained of her family property. So Naomi and Ruth are both find themselves in need of redemption so that they don't become entirely destitute and forgotten. And that's what we're going to see. So Naomi, we come into this chapter, the piece of land comes into play in verse 3, and we're in the opening scene of chapter 4. Now don't jump too quickly to the end of the story. There's a lot of detail in here, and it's been written like this for a reason. So we need to let each stage of the story teach us the lesson of the story. Boaz, coming off the back of chapter 3 and the night uh, on the threshing floor, was determined to settle the matter quickly. He won't wait for the unnamed relative of chapter 3 to just come along. He's going to track the man down. So what does he do? He goes to the city gates and he waits there. And behold, and it just so happens that a close relative was passing by at just that time. And here's what we've seen over and over in the book of Ruth. It's like this recurring idea that it just so happened. And again, it is another reminder that God has everything under control in a way that does not remove the need for responsible decision-making. Boaz didn't just wait back and decide to just see when this would happen. He went to the place where he knew the man would at some point be passing by. He goes to the city gates, the place where decisions were made, uh, the place where uh, deals were ratified, the place where redemption happened. God's control is absolute, so that in the good decisions and the bad decisions, God is always furthering His purposes. Do you think, do I think about the sovereignty of God like that? When you're at crisis point, when it's decision time for you, do you think much about the sovereignty of God? Does it show itself in trust in your life? Does your confidence in God show itself in thankfulness and in prayer? Confidence that He is providentially working things out, that He is in control, but that that doesn't remove a responsibility of you taking action. You see, that's what Boaz does. He recognizes something of God's providence in his story, and then he goes and he has a plan uh, to make this redemption happen. God's control extends to the finest details of a person's life, even going to the city gate, and it just so happening that the other Redeemer was walking past. The big picture and the small picture is all under God's control. If you're anything like me, I suspect that this is a message that you and I need to take seriously. Uh, for in the book of Ruth, God's care and control is seen equally in the spectacular and in the regular. 
It is a care and control that can work itself out in the ordinary dealings of one human being with another. It's a care and control that effortlessly guides every event in the direction of God's final purposes. It is a care and control which is only seen with the eyes of faith. And so, Boaz says to the kinsman redeemer, sit here. And he says to him, listen, this is what's happening. Naomi has come back from Moab. She's selling a piece of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. When everyone is there, the proposition is put to the man. But did you notice that in this first part of the deal, Boaz very shrewdly holds back all mention of Ruth for now. For now, it's not the right time. Uh, Proverbs, in a couple of places, speaks about knowing the right time and the wrong time to speak and to uh, reveal information. The wise person knows when to speak and when to keep quiet and what order uh, to tell particular details in or to share particular information. So Boaz isn't doing anything sinful here. He's just acting shrewdly and with wisdom. And for the moment, the deal is just about the property, and it makes complete sense for this man to buy it. He says, I will redeem it. It's Naomi's land. She is old. She can't have children. I think she's beyond childbearing years. It makes sense for this man to buy it as a business transaction. He'll be kind to Naomi. He'll be fulfilling the letter of the law, but he will also be adding to his property portfolio. He can take it under his roof without fear that this is going to cost him or damage him financially in any other way. And so he says, I'll redeem it. And of course, you don't blame him. When redemption doesn't cost you anything, when redemption is cheap or free, and it makes a lot of financial sense for you, well, hey, then you're going to go for it. But then, we don't know if Boaz expected it to go this way or what he thought was going to happen. And if the story finished there, there'd be no romance in it. Um, there'd be no kind of draw for us to finish reading it, you'd be incredibly disappointed that you listened to this whole sermon series to only find out that uh, some other guy gets the girl, a guy whose name isn't even mentioned. But at this point, Boaz decides that now is the time to mention Ruth. So he says, the day that you buy the field, verse 5, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, now hold on a second, now things get a little bit complicated. At first it was a shrewd business venture, he can enlarge his holdings, no fear of disadvantage in any way. But now it gets complicated. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, and get this, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz makes it clear that the deal includes Ruth. Ruth is not too old to have children, and by rights, any children that she does have will have a claim to Elimelech's inheritance. And on top of that, Ruth is a Moabites. And so this man realizes that he's going to have to spend some of his own inheritance to purchase the land. He'll then have to support Naomi and Ruth and any children that they might have. In the end, uh, he realizes that he'll have to give up his own inheritance or a portion of it, 
and then legally the inheritance goes to Ruth's children who are technically Elimelech's children. And on top of all of that, Ruth is a Moabitess, so there is this fear, this stigma, that the curse of the Moabites might also come upon him. Redemption may have seemed a lucrative business opportunity up until now, but when Boaz mentions Ruth, its true nature is on display. To act as a redeemer under those circumstances would be very costly and very risky. Uh, this man would have to give up. And when he counts the cost, he determines that the cost is too much. And so this nameless redeemer remains nameless in the story and 3,000 years later. Friends, when you see redemption properly as it really is, you recognize that redemption as the Bible understands it is a faithfulness that costs severely. In fact, it's a faithfulness that costs everything. It cannot be otherwise. Let me remind you that when you were redeemed by a descendant of Boaz, by the way, it cost the Son of God his life. It cost God his Son. That is the cost of redemption. Someone gave their life for you. God gave the one, his only son, whom he loved, to die on a cross. He so loved the world that he gave his only son for you. That is the cost of redemption. Real redemption always costs. I think there are two things that we can learn from that. The first one is this, to recognize with unbounded gratefulness and thankfulness and to respond appropriately and accordingly to what it costs to redeem us. That nothing in our life should ever be too much when we recognize what God did for us. His call on our life to faithfulness, to obedience, uh, to love, uh, to kindness, to goodness, to all of those things, to a transformed life, is nothing in comparison to what our redemption costs. And I think the second thing that we learn from this is that when we understand that redemption costs, we need to understand that we are part of that plan of redemption. And so when we strive to bring people into the kingdom, when we look for others to be redeemed, although we don't do the redemption, that's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, as we share that message, it will cost us. It might cost us financially as we give to kingdom work, uh, it, it might cost us time, it might cost us resources, but redemption costs. And so as you think about the people in your life who you are so desperate to share the gospel with, your children, your family, your friends, your colleagues, recognize that in that sharing of the gospel, that in their story of redemption, it costs Jesus. But there's a good chance that it will cost you too. And don't think that that cost is too much. Jesus told us to count the cost in following him, to understand the cost. Here's the cost. So back to the story. Boaz has been shrewd. He, prevents, he, he presents all the components of the deal in such a way as to make it a disadvantage to the unnamed relative. And through uh, the reluctance of the unnamed relative, through the negotiating of Boaz, God is guiding events in the direction that he has chosen. We might look at the deal and not know what's happening. We might think the result uh, has been up in the air. 
we might think that this is anything but a sure thing. But in God's providence, He has been working through human agents and human agency to accomplish what He wants. What the unnamed Redeemer is not prepared to do, Boaz is prepared to do. And he will bear the cost of redeeming Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech's family. He will act as the Redeemer. And so it was the custom in those times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now the narrator puts this notes in because at the time of writing and the time of the first reading of this, uh, this kind of tradition, whatever it was, uh, had been lost. The people reading this for the first time had, didn't know that this existed. So he explains what happens. And so the Redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself. He draws off his sandal. And then Boaz says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought the land of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native people. You are witnesses this day. The deal is cemented with the ceremony, which we know very little about. The transfer of the sandal symbolized a greater transfer that was taking place. Boaz calls everyone to be witnesses. Everything now belongs to Boaz. He's the redeemer. He bears the cost. And he specifically mentions his purpose in acquiring Ruth as his wife. Did you notice that back in verse 10? He doesn't label it as a matter of romance. His costly decision arises from his loyalty to the family that God has given him. It's loyalty to God himself. He does this to perpetuate the name of the dead. Here he is keeping not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. So the name of the dead perpetuates, his inheritance is held, he is not cut off from among his brothers. And those who witness the transaction, well, they call God's blessing onto this new couple. So just like that, Ruth is redeemed. Even though she could expect nothing from the law, she is redeemed by Boaz. And the last verses fill out the rest of the story. Boaz goes into her, uh, they make love, the NIV says, but the Lord enabled her to conceive. Again, human action, but the Lord behind it. The, she has this child, and the woman, blessed be the Lord, the woman said to Naomi. So again, now we're back to Naomi. The woman said to Naomi, verse 14, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Boaz's redemption of Ruth takes the form of marriage, and that marriage produces a son. And the son is truly Boaz and Ruth's son. But in another sense, it is Naomi and Elimelech's son. He is the heir of Elimelech's inheritance. He keeps the name alive. And 3,000 years later, we still talk of him because of this child. Don't miss out what the woman say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, he has not left you without an heir. They see God's hand in this. They see God undoing the tragedies that began back in chapter one when the family went and settled in Moab. They see God bringing joy and happiness and fullness 
to a woman whose life was in despair and bitterness and emptiness and loss. They have seen God provide through very ordinary means and not without suspense, waiting and the need for faith. And now a son has been born. So in one way, the book of Ruth is misnamed because it really is a story about Naomi. And yet, the story of Naomi couldn't exist without the story of Ruth. It is a move from great loss being overturned at the end. It is a story of great reversal. But through, and, and although Naomi suffered this great emptiness and everything was taken away from her, her husbands, her sons, her joy, but through very human means, and although things look so insignificant to us, not spectacular in everyday kind of ways, through the faithfulness of a foreign daughter-in-law, through the faithfulness of Boaz and his generosity and loyalty to the family, through the reluctance of an unnamed redeemer whose concern was to preserve his own inheritance, through all these things, God is at work to reverse the tragedies of Naomi's life. It is all God's mercy and it is, it is all generated by redeeming love and grace. And so the list of names right at the end of the book, that genealogy connects Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and Elimelech to the king who would come to David. And ultimately, it connects to one greater than David. You know, Boaz is actually featured in both of Jesus' genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. And so, in the grand plan of God, the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and Elimelech is actually a story about Jesus. It's interesting that in our relationship with Jesus is actually described uh, as a redemption. It's also described as a marriage. We are the bride that Jesus came to redeem by his death. And so in the book of Ruth, we are forced forward to the New Testament, uh, to the preparations that are being made for Jesus, the descendant of Obed, of Jesse, of David, of Boaz, and of Ruth. So at the end of the day, this is all part of Jesus' story. As we come out of Ruth, then, what do we take? Well, the purposes of God are, are unstoppable, but that doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing as though we were fatalists. We don't just lie around and let it happen around us. The purposes of God are worked out in our lives in very small, inch by inch, moment by moment decisions. The way that you use the opportunities that are given you, the way in which I use the opportunities given me, are all part of God's plan to move history forward to the great day when Jesus will return. And as in the book of Ruth, time and time again, there was suspense and hope seemed dashed on the uh, rocks, uh, uh, hope seemed dashed on the rocks by the storms of life. Although uh, there was waiting and there was trusting, so it is in your life and in mine. We don't always see the hand of God. We don't always feel as though things are under control and heading in the right or proper direction. There is in our life, as there was in the life of Boaz and Ruth, the need for faith, the need for trust, the need for confidence in the character of God. Plans uh, seem to be in a perpetual holding pattern for you, maybe. Um, hope seems lost. 
Ideas that you had for the future might feel as though they have come undone. But even when that happens, God has not lost control. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the Creator, according to His own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves Himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed ends. The model is of a purposive, personal management with total hands-on control, God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. So having faith is actively believing that God has not lost control. Having faith doesn't mean sitting back and doing nothing. It means actively believing and trusting in the character of God. Faith is not passive, and neither is it fatalistic. Boaz got out there. He sat at the gate and waited. Naomi put Ruth out there. She said, go and put yourself in front of Boaz back in chapter 3. And so we know this to be true from this story about a family in a little town. For when things seem to come undone, we've seen the hand of God in it all. It could not have come more undone than it did in chapter 1. And yet God's control is not limited to what we can see. God is not only there when we recognize it. Regularly, God exercises his sovereignty by letting things take their course rather than by miraculous intrusions of a disruptive sort. In the end, their faithful behavior and our faithful behavior springs from trust in the living God. Something of that faith, of that trust in God whose purposes are sure and certain, big picture and little picture, ordinary and extraordinary, natural and supernatural, they are worked out in your life and in mine, just like in the story of Ruth. Something of that trust in the living God, though, is being lost in the church today. And one of the causes is that people are not prepared to see that God has all things under his control. And so we have this feverish workaholism, these works that drive some people. Others have an absolute need for control all the time. Still others take a fatalistic approach, a do-nothing approach. All of these are wrong. Some run themselves into the ground while others do nothing because they are unsure that God is really in control because they're unsure of what it means that God is in control, and because they're unsure that they are right with God. When the gospel, even the gospel preached in Ruth, encourages us, encourages you to be confident in God who is working things out in His way in your life. It is the sovereignty and the providence of God that frees us to live as confident people, which means that we don't have to drive ourselves into the ground. We just need to be faithful in daily decision-making, in daily living. It means that we don't sit back and do nothing. We need to be faithful in daily decision-making and in daily living. Living as people of prayer, living as people of the book, living under the Word of God. I want to challenge you as we finish up the book of Ruth, 
to see the cost of redemption and to respond to it. I want you to, as we finish up the book of Ruth, live as faithful people and to learn the lesson of the story and to live it out increasingly in your life. To learn it in your life in such a way that whatever comes across your path, whatever the Lord puts in front of you, whatever decision or whatever disappointment comes your way, you are still able to say, God is in control and God is doing what is right and good. And my trust is actively and proactively being placed in Him. Let's refuse to trust those around us who will not trust God in good times or in bad. Let us as a group of people start talking again about the God who has even the little details of life under His perfect control and in His heart as well as ours. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. And so, friends, I hope that you will rejoice in the redemption that God has worked in your life. I hope that you will rejoice in His providence and control. And I hope that that rejoicing will lead you to trusting Him more and to a life of faithfulness. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of redemption, for buying us back. Help us to recognize and understand the cost. Help us, Lord, to bring this redemption to bear in the lives of others and bring forth in our hearts a faithfulness and trust in you that is living and active. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.